Well, good morning again. It's good to be here with you all. Um, if you could open up to Genesis chapter 22 uh, for just a moment. Uh, Genesis chapter 22. I hope to uh, close out uh, this, uh, this series on the life of Abraham next week. And then uh, we'll jump into the Christmas season for, you know, a couple weeks, uh, for however long that is. There will be a couple guest speakers in there before uh, the new year. And, and uh, will there be one uh, the week after Christmas? And then there will be another one, I think, in January, the early January. So um, be prepared for that. And then we're going to look at the book of Colossians uh, from there, uh, beginning in the second week of January. So I'm looking forward to... Uh, looking forward to that. And we're going to be in Genesis 22 today. Uh, and as I was thinking about Genesis 22, I was, I was thinking about a man named Steve Jobs. And many of you know uh, Steve Jobs as the man who uh, was the co-founder and he was the CEO of Apple Computers uh, for a number of years. And, and he was a guy who always looked for uh, the glorious. He looked for the glory in things. And, and he displayed this incredible drive of, of creativity. And, uh, but, you know, like all of us, Steve Jobs was a guy that, that struggled intensely with idolatry. And surprisingly, Steve Jobs' idolatry uh, wasn't over computers uh, or, or technology. Rather, it was control. And his uh, desire for control was manifested through uh, what he considered his, his diet. And so um, throughout his uh, life, he was obsessed with foods in ways that dominated both his life and his relationships. As a teenager, he, experienced, he experimented with some strange diets. At one point, he went two weeks uh, eating only apples, nothing else. Uh, he often had these various diets that were based on raw foods, and uh, it, it gave Jobs this exhilarating feeling of control over his, over his life. However, his idolatrous relationship to food may have actually cost him his life. On October, in October of 2003, a scan turned, out that, uh, turned up that he had a rare form of pancreatic cancer that's almost always curable if it's uh, caught early and with, with surgery. And, but with his idle food, he thought that he could use that as a method of control in order to, uh, to hone in his, his cancer, and it failed him. And as a biographer, uh, Walter Isaacson wrote this about Steve Jobs. He said, Jobs decided not to have surgery to remove the tumor, which was o the only accepted medical approach. I really didn't want them to open up my body, so I tried to see if a few other things would work, he told me years later with a hint of regret. Specifically, he tried to keep to a strict vegan diet with large quantities of fresh carrot and fruit juices for nine months as his friends and family pleaded with him to have the surgery. Jobs refused. So it was not uh, until the next year in July that he uh, decided to go through uh, with the surgery to have a piece of his pancreas removed, uh, but it was during that surgery that they found out that his cancer indeed had had spread, and uh, Jobs never would be free of cancer again. And it wasn't too long after that that uh, that Steve Jobs died at the age of 56. 
Uh, he was in a terminal stage, and not necessarily of cancer, but his terminal stage was more so of idolatry. And when the idol ceased to deliver, and, uh, and he couldn't get what he exacted or demanded of it, uh, he realized that, uh, that it, was not, uh, it was not working for him. You know, our hearts, likewise, are attracted to idols. John Calvin once said that our hearts are idol factories, that we are always looking for things in order to fill this void of glory in our hearts. We are chasing after many things all the time. Our hearts are wired for worship, and we usually try to fill that space with something that will ultimately let us down. So how do we avoid this trap of idolatry? How do we uh, not allow that to take over our lives? And how then do we find something that's lasting, something that's fulfilling, uh, something that uh, is indeed glorious that will never let us down? Well, the answer is in, in Genesis chapter 22. And so let's look at, at Genesis chapter 22 and see what, um, what the Holy Spirit writes through the pen of, of Moses and what it means for us. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship, and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand he took the fire and the knife, and the two of them walked on together. Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, My father. And he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here, but where's the, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, Here I am. He said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For, I, for now I know that you fear God, and since you have not withheld your only son from me, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city, uh, the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring." Because you have obeyed my command. 
Abraham went back to his young men, and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. Let's pray. God, would you help us to uh, search in our hearts to find out where is it that we have these idols? God, would you, uh, would you uh, cut deep into us today, Lord, so that we can cast those things aside and follow you wholeheartedly without reservation, Lord? And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, if we want to get rid of our idols, uh, there are a few things that we need to do. The first thing that we need to do is we need to recognize our idols. We need to recognize that we have idols. Verse 1 uh, tells us that God called Abraham once again. It was much like the way that he called him all the way back in, in chapter 12, but there's an unexpected twist here. In verse 2, it says, Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. And though Abraham doesn't know it yet, that this is indeed, uh, this is a test. Verse 1 tells us this, that God has, has set his sights on Abraham. And he wants Abraham to be the man that he wants him to be, a man that is wholeheartedly devoted to God, and he knows that something is not right between uh, him and Abraham ever since Isaac came on the scene. And now God lays out the the, the problem here, though it might be even a, a little cryptic, when he repeats Abraham's affections for his, his son. You can see it as it's written, as it intensifies. Look at it with me. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. There's an intensification there to really bring out what is truly inside Abraham's heart. You see, God knows something that you and I often neglect. When we place our love and affection on something or someone to a higher degree uh, than we should have for our love and affection for God, then we have placed an idol in our hearts. It's clear here that, that Abraham has shifted his allegiance Well, sure, he loves God. They go back 25 years. They've had all these, uh, if you want to call them, adventures together. They've been together through, through thick and thin. But now Isaac is here, and Abraham now rests his hopes, not on God, but on the success of this son and the future that is held in him. Without God's intervention, Abraham and we will come to realize that when we find our identity rooted in anything other than God, it will ultimately hurt us And it will also put a burdensome pressure on those in whom we rest those ideals onto. 
There is nothing and no one in this world that can possibly stand the kind of pressure that we put on them when we look to them to be God in our lives. It ruins relationships. It ruins our hopes, and it leaves everyone disillusioned and ultimately will leave us looking for the next best thing. And when that lets us down, we'll look for the next best thing and the next best thing. If you cannot see yourself without that job or without that person, without that future, without that object, then you find yourself actually in in good company here with Abraham. You've shifted allegiances and and put the created before the, the creator. Think about someone like uh, think about someone like Miley Cyrus, or you think about someone even like, uh, like Britney Spears, or Katy Perry, or I mean, you, you could put Taylor Swift in, in, in that, uh, that boat too. That here are all these pop stars that when they were younger and starting their careers, they all vowed that they're never going to be the next Madonna. They're never going to go over that threshold. They're never going to go into that sort of lifestyle. They're never going to live that way. But now here we are, how many years later, and we can see that their careers and their lives have taken a tailspin because they have traded the glory of what they wanted uh, for, uh, for something that has totally uh, taken over. Their public display shows their erratic lives spinning out of control. You know, and, and it's interesting that when we look at that, is that these were people that claimed when they were younger that they were good Christian kids. And so the thing that we're left with here is who's changed? Has, it, has God changed? Or have they their idols have, have completely taken over. They're, and these, they're idols that we create even in our own hearts. And the thing is, is that these idols may be very good and innocent things, but we've just taken our affection for them to a totally different level. They may be gifts from God, but they'll have similar results. Maybe they won't be as public as, as, as Miley Cyrus, but they certainly are just as destructive that alcohol will eventually catch up with you. The, uh, the gambling will eventually ruin the family's livelihood. The pornography addiction will eventually ruin the relationship and the marriage. We must recognize these idols in our, in our hearts because they will ruin our souls. So the question is, now that we have realized that we have these, these idols, what are we supposed to do with them? And that's our second point, is that we must be willing to surrender anything that gets in the way or threatens our allegiance or our relationship with the Lord. So God instructs Abraham to do the unthinkable. He tells him to go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice Isaac. And so the, the, the question that, that I think, it's, it's totally an innocent question. Why in the world would God ever send Abraham, or anybody for that matter, and Abraham's the only recorded one who actually uh, had this instruction from God, why would he, he send Abraham to sacrifice his son? And I think part of the answer is that uh, uh, we need to observe God's requirements throughout the Old Testament of what to do with idols. 
And if you remember throughout uh, the Old Testament, whenever it came to an idol, God told the people of God time and time again, you must destroy this idol. You must get rid of it. You must do something in order to purify uh, not only yourself, but also the, the community at large. But sacrificing is something completely different than destroying an idol. And so um, it seems like God is testing him here and that God is essentially trying to kill, uh, no pun intended, God is trying to kill two birds with one stone here. As a man of the ancient world, Abraham understood this idea of, of substitutionary sacrificial um, atonement. He knew that God just, just wouldn't be willy-nilly with forgiveness. And he said, well, you know, as long as you're sorry, then that's fine. We'll just move on. He knew that amends had to be made through some sort of, of a, a blood sacrifice. In this case, Abraham would have understood clearly what God said when he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. It was packaged in this language that meant atonement, that meant amends that on the part of Abraham. So the emphasis here is not on the fact that Abraham should not love his son. That's not what God is saying. Of course, Abraham was supposed to love his son. But what's happened here is that the object of his devotion and his affection was misplaced. What God wanted Abraham to hear, rather, was, I am the Lord your God, your only God, whom you love. So now you can see how Abraham has taken the unwritten first commandment of that God should be number one in his heart, and he has rather trans, uh, transferred that affection for, uh, and put it on Isaac. And we can see now how, how Abraham was also putting his godlike trust in Isaac as the promise rather than the promise giver of God himself. It was tarnishing their relationship. He is forgetting that God is indeed sovereign and demands full and soul devotion. So in requiring uh, Isaac to be sacrificed, God is, on the one hand, calling in Abraham's debt to atone for his sin, and on the other hand, he is calling Abraham to destroy an idol. What a conundrum that Abraham has found himself in here. And amazingly, Abraham complies. There's no hesitation in Abraham's obedience here. He gets everything, and he gets everybody together, and they go. Verse uh, 4 tells us that it was a, a three-day journey. And I can imagine Abraham's thoughts as they're taking this three-day journey, and, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to be a father and thinking this, that as he is going, knowing that his son is going to be sacrificed, but yet he can't help but think of the first time that he, that he held this boy and heard him cry. Couldn't help but think of uh, the times of, of those sleepless nights in which this child has kept him up. He, he can't help but think about all those, those fun times of chasing him around, uh, around the tent and the good times, and here they are. This boy he has been waiting for. 
for not just 25 years, but his entire life. Walking in silence as he remembers these things, Abraham knew that God was just. Isaac is the third person that we've encountered in this series so far that will feel the wrath of God because of Abraham's sin. And this time, it has come very close to him. But now Abraham also knew something about God, that God was just, but he also knew that God was gracious and merciful and that he was one who fulfills his promises. So the question in Abraham's mind is a question that if we are honest in our faith and if we are seeking out a genuine faith, every single one of us ought to ask this at some point in our lives. And that is, how can God's justice and his mercy and his promises work together in one person? How do these come together? How do they coexist? And the text gives us a little bit of a hint here uh, in verse 5 when Abraham tells his servant, he says, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over to worship and we'll come back to you. Notice the plural in there. He doesn't say, I and the boy, we're going to go and then I'm going to come back. And I don't know if he was just trying to throw this guy off because it would sound really creepy if he just said, hey, we're going to go worship, and guess what? I'm coming back, but he's not. That would seem a little strange, but I don't think that's what Abraham is getting here. Uh, in, in Hebrews 11:19, it sheds light on what, he, on what Abraham was thinking. It says this, He considered God to be able to even raise someone from the dead. Abraham had no promise, however, that God would do it. And the same is true for us. We believe in a God that can do anything. Nothing is impossible for our Lord. That does not mean that He is always going to do the impossible for us. Ian Dugweed writes this, Abraham simply believed God and acted in obedience. His faith led to action. Once again, Abraham had returned to the point of saying, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. How many of us live with that same sentiment? God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. So now, anchoring his full trust in God's justice as well as his grace, the text tells us in verses 9 through 10, it says, When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out, took the knife to slaughter his son. You know, idols in our heart are very hard to expel. They're very hard to get rid of, if not impossible, and the closest thing that I can liken uh, it to is an addiction. 
It doesn't matter if it's alcohol or pornography or gambling or any other common addiction. Uh, We're all addicts to something that we uh, idolize. And when these things are taken from us, uh, very, very quickly in some situations, there's sort of a shock that goes with it. And it feels as if something uh, inside of us has been torn out as that thing has gone with it. Uh, in my life, it's interesting, I have I've, uh, met with and, and counseled a number of guys who have admitted that they have an addiction to pornography, and they see it as uh, as, the, as a problem and that it needs to stop. However, the most interesting thing that I have found is that most of them balk at the, at the need and the steps in the need to aid in running that idol out of their, their lives and replacing it with something else. When the idea of, of putting a filter on their computer or on their, their phone comes up, and in the most serious cases, the idea of just getting rid of a computer or a phone altogether comes up, uh, then all of a sudden the addiction is not that serious anymore to them. Well, I can get by on my own. I can, I can, I can fix this on my own. I don't need a filter. I don't need to get rid of my computer. And they rationalize that they can beat this thing, and all it really shows is that the addiction has taken over their lives and has rationalized these decisions that they are making. But the thing is, though, is that the, the porn addict, the alcoholic, and, and the, the, the gambling addict, they're really no different than the grandmother who unhealthily obsesses over her grandchildren or the man who neglects his family in order to get that promotion so that more money can come into, uh, into the bank, or the teenager that spends countless hours in front of the mirror dolling themselves up in order to impress that boy in math class. It's all the same. They're captivated by a false and fading glory. And if we think that God doesn't call us to the same kind of radical obedience that he calls uh, Abraham to, then we need to remember what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10 when he said, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy worthy of me. See, God may call you to sacrifice an idol in your heart, or he may come to you like a very skilled surgeon with a spiritual scalpel and will cut that idol out of your life unexpectedly. But in verses 11 through 19, we can trust that just as any other surgeon He's got our best in mind. And so we find him then that we can trust him as a better option for us, and that is that we need to trust that God is going to provide. We need to trust that God is going to provide. In verse 7, Isaac is, starts to get a clue as to what's going on. You know, so he asks his father, well, you know, the fire's here, the wood's here, 
Uh, I don't see a bow and arrow or I don't see any sort of trap. Uh, what's going on here, Dad? It's hard to imagine, based on the plain reading, that Abraham knew that God wasn't going to allow him to actually kill a son. I don't think Abraham knew that at this point. This is not a drill for Abraham. This is not bound up in some sort of hypothetical that if he, uh, if he gets to a certain point and maybe he will, maybe he won't. Abraham picks up a knife. In fact, uh, Dave and I were talking just a, a week or two ago about even back in antiquity here, they, their knives and their weapons were pretty sharp. And he picks up this knife and he is ready to slit his son's throat. He is really going to do this. And the voice of God shouts at him in verse 12, Abraham, Abraham! And I hope you understand the irony of that. What does Abraham's name mean? Father of a multitude, right? Father of many? It's in essence as he has this knife, he's, he's ready to, to, to open up and, and, and sacrifice this kid, and God calls out essentially saying, Father of many! Father of many! He can't be the father of many without children, without this promised son. God says to him, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. And as Abraham lifts up his head to the voice of the, the direction of the voice, he notices that there is this ram that's caught in the bushes by his horn. God had provided. But not in the way that Abraham was expecting. So what did Abraham learn from all this, and, and, and what can you and, and I learn from this? I think that Tim Keller is, is very helpful uh, in, in, uh, in, in writing when he went through this passage. And he said, um, there are essentially two things that Abraham saw that day. One thing that he could see very clearly, and one thing that he could see perhaps only dimly. And so what Abraham could see clearly now, he couldn't before, was the fact that this was a test. Was Abraham absolutely committed, 100%, to serving God and God alone and forsaking anything else within that relationship? Was Abraham completely wanting to make God number one in his life? And Keller goes on to write, he says, From this perspective, we see that God's rough treatment of Abraham was actually merciful. Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham, Keller writes, but he was not safe to have and to hold until Abraham was willing to put God first. As long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience, he could not see that his love was becoming idolatrous. And likewise, our idolatry uh, often blinds us until we face a crisis. 
that job that we hoped would provide this great nest egg goes belly under. That child that we emotionally crushed because of our unrealistic expectations rejects us. The marriage that we thought would be a stabilizing force suddenly comes crumbling down when there's a confession of adultery. Are these things tragic? Absolutely they are. Are they painful? You bet they are. Should we mourn them? Yes. But as painful as these things are, there are some times when the fog begins to lift from them that we find that these situations have a way of unearthing what is truly going on in our hearts and where our allegiances lie. You know, in the backyard of our house that we owned when we were in Nebraska, uh, in the corner of the yard uh, where, the, where the fences had their 90-degree angle, there were a couple of rock beds. And uh, I, I got the, the bright idea one day that I was going to take up these rock beds and I was going to plant grass in there and, and fill out the whole yard. And so there were a number of days and nights that I handpicked the rocks out and I took the shovel and I dug up a lot of these rocks and, and finally the dirt looked really good. And then the rains came. And then it got really dry. And you know what? There were more rocks. Regardless of what I did, I could not get rid of all these rocks. They kept coming up and up as much as I wanted to clean them out. And that is what some of these situations do for us. When these situations come down heavy on our lives, it actually brings out what is truly in our hearts. It's under the surface in how we react. Maybe we react in, 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 in bitterness and unforgiveness or, or anger or whether we react in, in, in great joy that God is making us more like Jesus during these times. What happens to us in our lives shows what we are truly made of. If you remember, Jesus uh, had even said that from out of the heart the mouth speaks. Our reactions show what's true about us. And Abraham didn't realize it until he came that close to having a dead son in his arms and a failed promise in his heart. And maybe we might not get it until we have a pink slip or divorce papers, maybe an arrest warrant. But here's the second thing that Abraham saw dimly. Abraham obviously knew that there was a sacrifice in order here. He had a sin debt, and that sin needed to be paid for. But when he took that ram and he placed it on the altar and sacrificed it in place of Isaac, there's a sense in which Abraham knew that this ram wasn't completely able to take away all of the sin and the mess that he had created in his own life. Last week, we looked at John uh, chapter 8, verse 56. 
in light of the birth of Isaac, but it applies throughout all of Abraham's life. Again, 856, uh, 856 in the Gospel of John says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He sought and was glad. Now, how could Abraham have seen, uh, been glad to have seen Jesus' day as he sat there on Mount Moriah with Isaac? He saw it and was glad because he knew that his debt would be paid and that God would provide it. What he didn't know was that spot that he was sitting on at Mount Moriah would one day house the temple of God when the people of Israel would live in Jerusalem and where sacrifices would happen that would look forward to one day that would happen on a much smaller hill, just a stone's throw away from where Abraham sat, a hill on which another son would take the wood for the offering on his back and walk up that hill. This son, however, would not ask, where is the lamb for the sacrifice, Father? Because he knew that he was the Lamb of God who had been sent to take away the sin of the world. The question that he did ask as he hung on that wood was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he hung on that cross, he took the punishment that not only Abraham deserved, but every sin that we deserved for the same idols that we harbor in our hearts as well. God said to Abraham, Now I know that you fear me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. But how much more can we look to God and say, God, now I know how much you love me because you have not spared your son for me, but freely gave him so that I can be forgiven. This, friends, is the answer to our idolatry. We see it and rejoice just as Abraham did on Christ's day and what God's great love was for us when Christ died for our sins, that we can replace the idols in our hearts with Christ's love and freely live, freely give, and freely lose whatever it is that entangles us and keeps us back from knowing and loving God and what he calls us to. Whatever takes us captive, whatever seizes our hearts, we can freely give and replace it with something more lasting, something that is never going to let us down or disappoint us or make us look for the next best thing. We can be satisfied that the Lamb of God has been slain and provided by God himself. You were created to be a glory seeker. You were created for worship 
But because we are sinners by nature, we look for other things to take that glory, and they only disappoint. There's only one place to put your hope. There's only one place to put your glory. There's only one place to put your joy. There's only one place to get your forgiveness. There's only one place to get your sanctification. There's only one place to get your salvation from. That is in God in Jesus Christ, in whom Paul writes in Romans 8.32, he did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? Your heart, your idolatrous heart, and my idolatrous heart can find its satisfaction in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this tough story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac and how it points more so to the fact that you have sacrificed your son on our behalf. And so, Father, as we move into this time of communion, may we remember his sacrifice, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Happy are we who are called to his table. Amen.